The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Good morning, church. Um, it's so good to uh, be here, well, online uh, on Sunday and be able to uh, come and preach God's word to you. Um, we are in our series in Genesis. Um, for those who are new with this, uh, my name is Massimo, um, and I'm uh, one of the elders here at GCC. Uh, we are uh, today tackling uh, Genesis 15, and um, it's, a, it's a very famous story, uh, and it's the story about where God cuts a covenant with Abram. And therefore, uh, the title of today's sermon is The God Who Covenants. Well, before I start, let me ask you this question. Um, do you ever struggle with doubt? Uh, do you get anxious or worry about your salvation or any other aspects of your faith? I mean, how do you know that God is going to be faithful to you? Do you struggle because you know you're not being faithful? Well, in today's passage, uh, we see Abraham, the man of faith, uh, the, the person who, when you read through the entire scriptures, will be referred to as the most faithful one, the, the pillar of faith, the biblical example of faith. We'll see him struggle uh, with the same questions. So let us read and see what God does and what we can learn from this story. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he, bought him, and he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, and a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And uh, then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go from your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. 
and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedamonites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at your word uh, this morning, Father, we pray for clarity of the text. Father, I pray for grace that I'm able to preach your word clearly. Father, I pray for grace of all of us uh, to hear your word. Uh, Father, that your word will uh, truly convict our hearts and transform our minds and shape our lives. I pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Well, today we're going to look at uh, three things from this text. We're going to look at the problem of doubt, uh, the reward of faith, and the security of grace. Let me say that again. The problem of doubt, the reward of faith, and the security of grace. Let's look at the first point, the problem of doubt. When we look at this passage, um, it starts with Abram being anxious, uh, being fearful. Um, the way that we know it is because God speaks to him and says, fear not. And you might wonder, why, why is Abram fearful? I mean, out of chapter 13 and 14 that we uh, read uh, last week, um, Abram just overcame great victory. He was the victor. He, he just saw God powerfully work in his life uh, in a way that he will come out against all odds and, and have victory over his enemies. Now, he remember Nick's sermon last week, um, overcame people, overcame disasters, and overcame politics. Well, maybe he's being fearful because, well, he just attacked, and now maybe he's fearing retaliation. You know, he just, he just went out and had a military attack, and now he has land, and now maybe he's fearing that all these people will come and retaliate. Or maybe it's just because he had a, a spiritual high, a, a big high, and is now experiencing a low. You know, every time when you have a big high and suddenly you come down from the high and the adrenaline goes away and suddenly you experience this low and, and suddenly all these emotions start kicking in, all the fears that you may not have before. Well, even though God had won battles for him, he's now worried and he lacks confidence in God. Uh, do you ever lack confidence in God? Or do you have doubt in, 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 in your own faith? Maybe even after seeing God work in your life, you still struggle at times. Well, Abram, uh, who is the model of faith, is kind of just like you. And if he finds himself in such a situation, you probably will find yourself in a situation like this too. If he's not immune to worry and fear, neither are you. So, so how does God respond to him? What, what, what does God do? Well, God speaks to him. God says, I am your shield and your reward will be great. God comforts him in that way. God is saying that I'm not just your spear. I'm not just your offense. I'm not just going to help you in your military offense, but I'm also going to help you in your military defense. 
I am going to be your shield. And your reward will be great. So don't worry that you will not get what has been promised. Your reward will be great. Now, if you look at different translations uh, uh, in, in the various Bibles, the sentence is different at times. Uh, sometimes it might say, I am your great reward, rather than saying your reward will be great. Um, regardless of the translation, the main point that God is communicating to Abraham here is that, Abraham, do not fear. I am your protector and I am your benefactor. These are the two things he's saying. I am going to protect you and I am your benefactor. I will bless you and I will give you your promise. However, you know, these comforting words come to him in a vision and still Abraham continues to doubt. He still is not convicted yet, not convinced yet. He's still full of doubt. And he says, well, the way it looks like right now, Eliezer, my servant, is going to be my heir. I, I, I have absolutely no children. Um, see, his circumstance did not match up with what he thought was promised. His reality did not match up with his expectations. Now, back then, it was customs that if, if, if a, a, a patriarch of a family would not have children, then he would choose one of his favorite servants or his steward or, or somebody close uh, that he can trust to be and adopt them into the family, and that person would become an heir. So this is what Abraham is making reference here to. And he was worried that now Eliezer is going to be his heir. Now, just for information's sake, in case uh, the person is adopted and then uh, the family should have a biological child, the bi biological child, of course, become the true heir. But still, here he is, Abraham, and, and he has good reason to doubt. I mean, he's probably almost about 100 years old at this time of the story. So how does God respond this time? Well, God assures him again. He says, you will have a son. And he will be your own son. But God does not just give him a, 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 a word. God just doesn't give him an intellectual knowledge. No, what God does, he, he gives him a visual aid uh, to further comfort Abraham. In fact, it's not just a visual aid. Uh, God gives him an experience. He takes him outside and shows him the stars. You can just imagine God going and getting Abraham by the hand and walking him out the door and then putting his arm around Abraham and saying, look, look at the stars. When I was thinking of, of, of how this might feel like, um, um, what came to my mind is like the scene in Lion King when Mufasa tells Simba, everything that touches the light will one day be yours. You know, it, 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 it's that kind of experience. And, you know, why do we know this? Because, uh, and why does uh, this, this Lion King sentence, everybody remembers it? Because it's an experience. It was like a, a, an, an, an awe moment, right? So this is the kind of moment that, that, that Abraham was having at that time. So there's a few things that we can learn uh, right here, just on how God deals with Abraham. God wants us to trust. God wants us to have faith in him. Now, you say, of course, that's, that's natural. It's understood. Um, however, in our culture, um, in the city, faith and trust can sometimes be seen as something naive. Where skepticism and cynicism are often glorified. 
If, if, if you don't question, if you blindly trust and just have faith, you're not intelligent, uh, you're stupid, and you are naive. So it is good to question. It is good not to trust. It is good to be skeptical. In a very liberal setting, we might even be reprimanded to challenge somebody of their lack of faith. But God does not leave Abraham in doubt. He challenges faith and responds to him and helps him to believe. He doesn't leave him in doubt. Now, God did not do it in an angry manner. God does not scold Abraham and says, how dare you not believe me? How dare you question me? Because in a very conservative setting, doubting and questioning could be seen as sin itself. How dare you question? How, how dare you doubt? Just, just believe. But no, God is gentle. And he uses this, this doubt of Abraham to give him an experience in a way to help him grow in faith. God did not give Abraham new information. He did not uh, reveal something clever or convinced Abraham intellectually. God just did not give him a new promise. But what God did, if he gave him a spiritual experience, an encounter, one could say, something that he could then remember. You see, Jesus does the same thing in the New Testament with doubting Thomas. Thomas did not believe that Jesus is the resurrected Lord or that he resurrected and says, this person, I don't, I don't believe it. But then in John 20, verse 27, uh, Jesus says, to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. But then Jesus also says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus treats the doubt with a gentle experience of asking him here, come touch. But he also doesn't leave him in doubt and ask him, doesn't glorify doubt and doesn't say doubt is okay. He says, now do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, as I was uh, looking at this passage, I called some people and I asked uh, them, how do you know that you believe in God? Now, besides giving me some theological responses, uh, many replied with a story of personal experience. And see, many of you grew up as, as children in, in, in Christian homes. And we know that from the testimonies that you guys have shared as you became covenant partners here in GCC. And, and, and you grew up in home kind of believing in God, but still you had doubts. Often it was your parents' faith and, and not your own faith. And, and yet you would say you believe, but you still were not sure about your belief. But then God did something. Most of your testimonies, and God did something which you we can't exactly explain. It might have been a camp. Or, or it wasn't a youth camp or an altar call or, or a change of friends or, or a sermon or a person came into your life. Sometimes it was a, a, a bad situation, a big fear or, or a, a struggle that God used to show his faithfulness to you. It was never new information. It was not suddenly that somebody says, and Jesus died on the cross for you. And you went, oh, wow, really? No, it was not new information. It was something else. 
And, and you might not be able to explain it, or maybe you are able to explain it. But it was an experience. It was an encounter with God. And that's why when people like faith in scripture, uh, God often says this, remember Remember what I've done for you. Remember I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Remember the experiences you had with me. In the same way, it teaches us to remember the experiences we had with God. Well, this also teaches us how we are supposed to deal with people who have doubt. We don't glorify doubt. We don't say stay in doubt. We don't say it's, it, it, it's good and intelligent to be a doubtful person. No, we try to help people out of doubt. We gently point them to truths that they may already know. We help maybe illustrate them and share maybe our experience in with them. Now, we, we are, we're not able to manufacture God experiences with them or encounters with them. We, we can't do that. But we could pray that they may have a personal encounter with God. What we don't want to do is shut them up and make them feel guilty about doubt. No, everybody doubts. God does not deal with doubters in that way. Now, God throughout um, the, the Bible deals with doubters in different ways at times uh, because sometimes doubt is just pride and sometimes doubt is, 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 is some people just being highly antagonistic against what the message is. But, but sometimes doubt is just a real struggle. So what's the real problem of doubt then? Well, the real problem is that we often can't overcome it in the natural. We can't overcome it with just more information. We would rely on the supernatural, God's personal encounter. Now, God does that to Abraham. He gives him an encounter. That's how, how God deals with Abraham's doubt. Which brings us to the second point, the reward of faith. Now, before I can talk about the reward of faith, I, I kind of need to highlight another small problem about doubt. You see, most often, uh, our doubt is not in God's faithfulness. It's, I mean, it's not that, because doubt, doubt can be in two ways, right? It could be either that we are worried that God will let us down, doubting his faithfulness, or it could be doubt in ourselves, in our own faithfulness, to be able to live up to God's expectations. And most often, I don't look at my circumstances and question my faith because God is not being faithful. I question my faith because I'm not being faithful. Maybe a sin, a, a repetitive sin, um, or just the, the everyday awareness of my human sinfulness is the number one creator of doubt in my life. Maybe yours too. When, when I do this sin or, or when I'm, I'm being unfaithful, I question myself, if I really believe, if, if I would really believe, maybe I wouldn't do that. My unrighteous behavior is causing me doubt. And often, uh, how do I respond in a situation where, 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 where I worry, where, 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 where I, I see this unrighteous behavior and I start doubting, where I get anxious. <laughs> I, I feel helpless. I, I, I get nervous. I get, I get frustrated. And I know that I'm frustrated with my faith when I go around and try to micromanage all other kind of things. I, I, I feel powerless. I feel vulnerable. Sometimes because I'm not in control of my faith and, 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 and I feel so unrighteous here, I try to prove myself at work and see how good I am there. 
And then I come home and, 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 and oh, well, I come out of my room nowadays, right? Uh, and, and then I, I, I want to numb myself because I do not know how to deal with this. So sometimes we freeze. We do not know how to fix it. And sometimes we go out and we really try to fix it. Um, sometimes we do what's called in Hail Mary. We try to do this, 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 this grand gesture, right? I know I'm going to sell all my possessions and give it all to Jesus. You know, or we want to, we want to go on that, that, that mission trip Sunday, or I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go to seminary. I'm not saying don't go to seminary. I'm just saying that, that um, coming out of sin is not the reason for seminary, right? Um, I mean, you don't go to seminary just because you're trying to deal with your own righteousness. Hopefully, it's the overflow of your worship and your call in your life that brings you to seminary. Now, you know, we do this Hail Mary acts, and some of us medicate, you know, whether it be Xanax, alcohol, or porn, you know, various things to numb ourselves. Now, I'm not trying to say that that, that porn addictions or alcohol addictions or anything are, are as bad as somebody working really hard, but I'm just saying these are different kind of responses. Now, regardless of how we respond, it is us trying to deal with our unrighteousness. We're trying to fix it through works or escape the reality of us being unrighteous. I know sometimes I can have this like dual split personality that I know with one side of my personality, I'm committing the sin and I'm not letting the other personality know. You know, I, I know I'm about to commit the act, but I'm not going to tell myself I am. So in a way I'm ignoring and I'm freezing it. I don't know, maybe that's just me who has the experience, but you know, it feels like there's two me. But let's look what happens in the passage. Well, what does the passage today actually tell us? Well, in verse six, it says, and he, and he being Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was faith that made Abraham righteous, not works, not his behavior. And it's the same for us. And to really understand what's going on here, we need to flip to Romans 4. Because uh, Paul in Romans, floor, Romans 4 gave a, a, a commentary on this passage. Now, um, I would encourage you to take Romans 4 and read it in the whole. But for today, I'm just going to read small excerpts of it. So if you have Bibles, uh, put a finger on Genesis 15 and flip with me to uh, Romans 4. And in verse 3, it says this. For what does scripture say, quoting the, the passage of today, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then he explains it. Now to the one who works, and works means anybody who tries to fix it themselves, who out of their own behavior is trying to get that righteousness. So the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but it is his due, which means that if, if you try to work, then, then salvation and the righteousness is not a gift. It's not a free gift, but you, it's owed to you. It's, it's what you deserve. But then in verse 5, it says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So if, you, if you're not trying to put it in works, but you just believe in the one who justifies you, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you believe, it's your faith. That counts as righteousness. And then it explains, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous 
apart from works. So he's giving an example that even David believed. It's not just Abraham who believed it, it's David believed. It's not just New Testament theology, this is biblical theology. He's saying that apart from works, there's blessing and God counts people righteous. And he says this, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. So through faith, you're forgiven and your sins are covered. Blessed is the man against the Lord will not count sin. Your sin will not be counted against you through faith. And therefore, you'll be counted as righteous. So you are sinful. You are not righteous. Abraham was sinful. He was not righteous. Your sins are supposed to be counted against you. Now, we know that faith is supposed to make you righteous, right? Or lead you to righteousness or result in righteousness. There's supposed to be a, a righteous behavior for the people who are of faith. But, but that's what's creating the doubt. Because you're not. And that's why you doubt. But the text today is not saying that. It is not saying faith was counted it's saying faith was counted as righteousness it's not saying that faith was righteousness it was counted to abraham as if he was righteous that's what it means that faith was credited to you counted to you as righteous as if you were righteous it did not change your actual righteousness. It did not change Abraham's actual righteousness. It just changed his legal standing, that he now stands justified and righteous. It's not talking about his practical righteousness, his living out of the righteousness, but the way God looks at him, his standing in righteousness, his legal status. It's counted to him as if he were righteous. The famous Latin saying is simul justus et peccator, you are simultaneously righteous and sinful. You're at the same time justified and sinful. That's what it means that our righteousness is credited or counted to us. We receive it by faith. You see, righteousness is the reward of faith, not works. Now, in verse 20 in Romans 4, it says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And he's talking about Abraham. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, look at the strange thing about the sentence. No unbelief made him waver. That means no unbelief stopped him from believing so so how do you make sense of this it's kind of like in the gospel of mark when 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 the when the uh, a man says i believe help my unbelief you see doubt is not the opposite of faith or of faith is not the absence of doubt faith is trusting god in the midst of doubt that's what faith is Everybody has doubt. Everybody struggles. Faith is trusting God in the midst of doubt. 
And that's why in verse 22 in Romans 4, it says, and that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed the promise and therefore was counted to him as righteousness. So in a way, our faith needs to be just like Abraham's, but in a way, it needs to be a bit different too, because Abraham had to believe based on what God had revealed to him based on that time in history. That there will be a promise that he will have inheritance. That was Abraham's promise. But we are similar like Abraham. That's what the passage in Romans 4 is telling us. However, we have to believe on what God has revealed to us until this time in history. And we already know that Jesus came. And we already know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we already know that Jesus rose again. So we must put our faith in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord. And who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's what we must believe in. But that same faith will credit us righteousness. And that brings the question though, why is faith enough? Why can faith credit us righteousness? Why can faith be counted for us as righteousness. Well, it brings us to the third point, the security of grace. After Abraham was credited with righteousness, everything should be good, right? But look what the text says here in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord. And back in Genesis 15, by the way, I am the Lord who brought you all from Ur and of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. But he said, and this is, this is Abraham, O oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I supposed to know? How do I know? Do we ask the same thing? How, how do we know? How do we know that we are righteous? How do we know that God will be faithful? How do we know that God will fulfill his promise? Well, God responds with an amazing, mind-blowing act. He asked Abraham to get animals. And we're like, what's going on? Well, Abraham knew exactly what was going on. Because Abraham didn't need instructions to then do with the animals what he's supposed to do. It just says, go, Abraham, go get these animals. And suddenly we read, now Abraham took him and cut them into half. So Abraham understood immediately what God was trying to do when God says, go and get the animals. God was about to cut a covenant with him. Create a covenant, sign a covenant. Now, back then, we were in an oral culture, a storytelling culture. So when you want to make a binding promise, which a covenant is, a covenant can be defined as a chosen relationship in which two parties make a binding promise to each other with sealed with an oath. That's what a covenant is. 
Back then, if you want to make a binding promise, you will reenact an experience that people could remember. And, 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 and this experience here would be that they would take animals and cut them in half and create an alleyway between the two halves. And then they will walk together through that, saying an oath and saying that in case any one of us, two parties, will not keep that oath, may we end up like the cut pieces. May we end up like these animals cut into two, broken, dead. Now today, we live in a written culture. So um, when you get married, you don't cut animals into two, right? Because marriage is a covenant, right? Um, the only animals you cut for a wedding is the food that you eat uh, after doing the winter, uh, wedding celebration. But uh, what you do, you, you sign a document. You sign that you're now legally married. You sign the covenant. The same thing when you become a covenant partner with GCC. We're not going to you know, create animals for you to walk through. Uh, maybe, uh, 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 maybe a few hundred years ago, people have done a, a solid handshake. That would have been the sign of the covenant. But, but now we, we are in a written culture. So therefore we sign a document um, to be certain of, of the oath that we have made to one another. So this was happened uh, there. And you see, back in the culture, two parties will walk through it uh, and to signify that they are upholding this covenant and they will end up dead like the animals. However, if the covenant would have been done with a king or sovereign or suzerain, usually the, the sovereign would not walk through uh, the, uh, the alley. He will not walk through the, the, the cut pieces. Usually only the vessel or the subject or the lower party, the weaker party will walk through. So a a, a king and a, uh, um, and a farmer uh, would um, make a covenant and the farmer says, I will serve you with all my crops. And the king will say, well, and I will protect your land. Um, then only the farmer will walk through uh, saying that in case I do not give you my crops or, or a certain percentage of my crops, may I be killed. Whereas the king will not walk through because the king has nothing to lose and doesn't need that protection and doesn't need the farmer. So the king will not go through unless it's a very, a very nice king, you know, a, a, a very good king at times in the culture. Then he would walk through as well, saying, if, in case I don't protect you, then I will be cut too as well. So in this passage, we see two, again, mind-blowing things that happen. Let's read here in verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, uh, the river of Euphrates, and so on. Well, the first thing we see is that God walked through. How do I know it's God? Well, it says here, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Uh, the, the, the fire and the smoke is a reference to God's presence, which we see later on in Exodus, how he walks before the people in the cloud and the smoke and the fire. This is, signifies God's presence. So it's the theophany. It's the, it's the presence of God, his appearance, that it signifies the smoking fire pot. And by God walking through these pieces and saying, I am going to make this covenant and your offspring will have this land. And he's saying to Abraham that if I fail to uphold this promise, I, God, will be cut into pieces. 
the infinite will become finite, the immortal will become mortal. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I will be held accountable for this oath I make. But that's not the only mind-blowing thing. That a sovereign, that a king would actually go through. And this is the king of kings. This is the sovereign of sovereigns. This is, this is our sovereign God. So it's not just that he's a, a good and nice God. But here, Abraham, or Abraham in a part of time, did not walk through. It said early on that Abraham was in a deep sleep. Now, it's a, it's a strange kind of sleep because he can still see and talk to God for a moment there. So I'm not going to get into that details, right? Uh, but anyways, he was he was probably perplexed. It says a dreadful darkness came over him. And you probably could read that in a way that there was so much dread because probably the presence of God was before him, right? That he couldn't move anymore. So he was in a kind of sleep. And it means that Abraham did not walk through the covenant. Now here you see the weaker party, the one that needs protection, the one that wants the promise, the one that wants the blessing, not going through. And by God asking Abraham not to go through or incapacitating Abraham from going through, he's saying here, Abraham, it's not just when I fail to uphold the promise, I'll be dead. If you fail to uphold the promise, I will pay the price. Even if you fail, I will uphold the covenant and I will pay and bear the consequences, not just of my failure but of your failure. Which means the promise is not the oath. The promise is not dependent on Abraham at all. His behavior will not thwart the promise of God. And in the same way, it is for us. Well, you know, Abraham failed. As we read on, there will be a demand of how Abraham is supposed to live his life, and he does not live up to that demand. We will see Abraham's flaws over and over and over again. And we too, as covenant people, part of the new covenant, confessing our faith in Jesus, we fail. We are not righteous. We have sinned. But over 2,000 years ago, just as God declared through the covenant oath, that if Abraham should fail, and if we should fail, he will cut, be cut into pieces. Over 2,000 years ago, God in the person of Jesus was pierced, was broken, was nailed, and became, quote-unquote, the animal pieces. He was cut. He was split in two by a spear. He upheld the covenant by paying its cost. Somebody has to pay the price for unrighteousness. For not upholding the covenant. And God did. And it must be somebody who must be perfectly righteous. And that was Jesus. You see, he lived the life we are supposed to live. The life that Abraham was supposed to live. And he died the death that we deserved. And when it says... Faith was counted to us as righteousness, or faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. It was Jesus' righteousness that was counted to us. It was his righteousness. 
And our sins are put on him. And his righteousness is put on us. And that's why faith is enough. It's not just why faith is enough. And that's why it must be by faith. It cannot be by works. Because only by faith can there be grace. By works, it would be your wages. It wouldn't be grace. Verse 16 in Romans chapter 4 says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. If it were not by faith, it would be by works. And if it would be by works, it could not be by grace. And if it's not be by grace, there will be no security. You could not know. But it's by grace. It's unmerited favor. That's how you know. That's how you can know that you will be credited righteousness by faith. Because we have a God who covenants. A God who created a covenant and says that it will only be up to me, God, to fulfill this covenant. And he fulfilled the covenant, upheld the covenant by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price of us not upholding our part of the covenant. That's how you know. That's how we overcome the problem of doubt. That's how we receive the reward of faith, righteousness. We receive it by grace. So when you doubt, remember. Remember firstly, your personal experience. Your encounters with God. How he had called you to faith. Remember, the Bible tells us, how he worked in your life. How he has been faithful to you. And then remember, in the midst of your sin, that it's not dependent on you. Remember the great ceremonial act of the cross, where he fulfilled the covenant for you. Trust in God's faithfulness of upholding his covenant in the midst of your doubt. Trust in God who covenants. Trust in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of of works. We have a God who cuts covenants and upholds them for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for this gift of grace. Father, so often we we, we have doubt and we struggle and we try to fix it and we uh, we, we, we get nervous and anxious and, and, and we look in our lives and we question our faith and we question our faithfulness and we question our righteousness and we question our salvation. But Father, help us remember that it's not dependent on us, but it's dependent on you. When Jesus says it is finished, he meant it. It is finished. 
He fulfilled the covenant. He paid the price. Father, help us remember how you faithfully acted in our life. Help us encounter you over and over again so that we would have this experience of your presence and remember that you are a faithful God. We are such forgetful people. Help us remember who you are and what you have done in our lives and for everyone who believes in Jesus on the cross. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.